U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy. I am joined by the XOXO, Kristoff. Hey, hey Kristoff. Hello, Captain. Oh, and I'm Dale. Oh, yes. Hello, I Dale. Forgot. Sorry. We're, yeah, hi. We've established enough of a rapport that I can call you Dale. It's very exciting. Uh, I'm looking forward to this episode. I'm having a great time this this go-round. Yes, we're going to continue our dive into notable African Americans in the United States Navy. So are you ready to get underway? Yes, and I wanted to point out how fabulous that pun was that you used, given that Carl Brashear, uh, featured in our last episode, was a master diver. So we're diving in, see? It's, it was great. Okay, continue. Okay. So, first up is the Golden 13. Have you ever heard of these guys? I have not. I don't think. These were 13 African-American enlisted men who became the first African-American commission and warrant officers in the U.S. Navy. So, uh, throughout the history of the Navy, until the end of World War I, the Navy had enlisted African-Americans for general service roles. And they were actually barred from joining the Navy from 1919 to 1932. Yes. Is that a... I'm guessing that's a Wilson thing. So when they were able to join the Navy up until 1942, they were only allowed to join the Navy's messmen's and steward branch yeah. rates. This not only segregated them from the rest of the Navy community, but also made sure that they would not be able to become commissioned officers. So I guess in your experience, if you're assigned to the mess area, is it difficult to be or what is that what is that dynamic like? Well, for the enlisted, I'm not sure how it works for the officers, but for enlisted first you have to take a written exam. This is modern. I don't, I'm not sure about back then, but okay. now you have to take a, an exam, which gives you questions about anything and everything to do with your rate. That Your rate is your job. It's your MOS. Okay. MOS is what they use in the rest of the military. It's your military occupation specialty. I understand. It's your job. Okay. So if you pass that then you are eligible for promotion. Now there has to be an actual opening. So for instance, for instance, if you're going from say machinist mate fireman, which is MMFN, which is an E3 to third class petty officer, there has to be an opening in your command for a machinist mate third class. I see. So you better hope that a third class got promoted to second class, and a second class got promoted to first class. So depending on your rate, you can actually get stalled out for quite a long time. I knew a guy who was a second class for a very long time just because there were no openings. That makes, and, that makes sense. And, and depending on the rate, like machinist mate, if you're a conventional machinist mate, it is pretty hard to get over third class because of the new... The, uh, because of the nukes because they're given third class right out of nuke school uh, and then they get second class just for re-enlisting huh. so yeah getting up is a lot harder and i imagine if we bring it back to the context of uh what you were saying if all african-americans are in one 
specialization or maybe all the all the people of one type are competing in one area and so to hope that there's an opening in that area like the likelihood of you moving up abysmally low if you can move up right and uh one of the things you can do to change rates is just to take the test for the next rank in that other rate and then you can actually just jump from rate to rate to advance these guys didn't have that option doesn't sound like no so in june of 1941 president franklin d roosevelt signed a executive order prohibiting ethnic and racial discrimination by federal agencies or contractors involved in the defense industry and then in april of 1942 because of protests and pressure from civil rights leaders and press the Navy allowed black men into the general service ratings for the first time. So that's when they were able to be able to be something other than messmen's and stewards. Responding to pressure from the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, and Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Aldi Stevenson, in January of 1944, the Navy began to offer officer training courses for 16 African-American enlisted men at Camp Robert Smalls. We, Remember we him? We yes. talked about him. <laughs> yeah. So does that... Was Camp Robert Smalls a gen... Sometimes, even back then, they would segregate the African-American... Yes. Okay. So to ensure their failure, the normal training period of 16 weeks was reduced to eight weeks. Oh, wow. And... When they realized that someone in the Navy wanted them to wash out, the cadets covered up the windows of their barracks and studied all night. Nice. When they were te- yeah, when they were tested, the entire group passed with high marks. This caused a lot of disbelief in the chain of command that you know a all black cadet class could achieve higher scores than an all white one. So they made them retake their tests. Really. Yep, they were like, you guys cheated. Yeah, retake them. They all passed again. <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. The class the class average at graduation was 3.89. I wish I had those marks in college. So even though all 16 passed, only 12 were commissioned in March of 1944. They were Jesse Walter Abor, Philip George Barnes, Samuel Edward Barnes, Dalton Lewis Bow Sr., George Clinton Cooper, Reginald Ernest Goodwin, James Edward Hare, Graham Edward Martin, Dennis Denmark Nielsen, John Walter Reagan, Frank Ellis Sulbut, William S. White. These guys were all commissioned as ensigns. Charles Bayard Lear was appointed as a warrant officer. The others that uh, passed but were not given commissions was Augustus Alves, J.B. Pinky, and Lewis Mummy Williams. Now, we don't know why all 16 were not given commissions, Mm -hmm. and we never will. That's pretty much it with that. So, because Navy policy barred blacks from being assigned to combat ships, the first, these first officers were assigned to command shore logistic units, mm-hmm. 
small tugboats and tender ships, and also training African-American enlisted personnel. So previously, when they were just limited to mess duty, for example, they were allowed on combat ships, right? Because you'd, be, you'd have to feed um, your sailors, right, on each ship. I imagine this was kind of a, this changed the what ship type they could serve on. I'm sure they could serve on multiple ships, almost any variety, as long as they were just serving food. But now that they were in some kind of more technical or specialized capacity outside of that, that's when it got limited. Is that, was that fair to say? No, before World War II, they were not allowed to serve on combat ships at all. Really? Okay. Wow. They did not want to give them access to weapons. Okay, that makes sense. Just like when the army, they weren't allowed to be frontline troops. They could only serve as logistical. Far from the weapons. Interesting. Yeah, I guess in that vein of thinking, you don't want to train someone you you fear in uh, weaponry, like marksmanship or combat techniques. Yeah. So, yeah, at this time, World War II, that's when everything changed. Uh, let's see. After the war, President Harry S. Truman officially desegregated the U.S. military in 1948. And at the time of the Golden 13th commissioning, there were approximately 100,000 African-American men serving the United States Navy's enlisted ranks. Of the 13, most of these guys got out after the war as Lieutenant JGs. Three of them, Bo, Nelson, and Reagan, remained until they retired as Lieutenant Commanders. Samuel Barnes, he became the athletic director at Howard University and served on the executive committee of the NCAA. He was the first African-American to do that. Dalton Bowe served as an instructor of the Naval Engineering School and then later at MIT. Dennis Nelson served as a public affairs officer and he submitted a report entitled The Integration of the Negro into the U.S. Navy which was published as a book in 1951. William White would serve as the presiding judge of the Cook County Juvenile Court and justice of the Illinois Appellate Court. Wow. Yeah, when you said Cook County, I immediately thought Chicago. Yep. Okay. Cook County is Chicago. Frank E. Sublett was the last living member of the group. He passed away in 2000. In 1987, the U.S. Navy reunited the seven living members to dedicate a building in their honor at Great Lakes Naval Recruit Training Command. That is Navy Boot Camp, for those that don't know. (laughs) This is Building 1405. This is where recruits first arrive for basic training, and it is named the Golden 13 in honor of them. So I have been through that building myself. So 87 was when that was dedicated, and that was, what a good, about 45 years after, like, integration happened. I, that, that's, I know that seems like a long time. 42 years is a long time to most people, but, I mean, that's a generation. In a generation, you went from segregated forces or disallowing one section of Americans from even serving to honoring 
that section you were denying. I think I that's going in the right direction. You know what I mean? That's great. It's progress. Yeah. In 2006, ground was broken on a World War II memorial in North Chicago, Illinois, to honor the Golden 13 and Doris Miller. Today, the Golden 13 Memorial is located at Veterans Memorial Park, Sheridan Boulevard, and 18th Street. So, speaking of Doris Miller, why don't we talk about him? I was going to... Name doesn't sound familiar. Continue. I'm glad you uh, read my mind. Uh, Stay out of it most of the time. But in this case, I'm glad... Yeah, no, I don't like going in there. It's nasty. Well, yes. Well, let's just talk about Doris Miller. Okay. So he was a naval cook who was the first African-American recipient of the Navy Cross and a nominee for the Medal of Honor. So let's get into his life. He was born in Waco, Texas on October 12th, 1919 to Connery and Henrietta Miller. He was named Doris as the midwife who assisted his mother was convinced before his birth that the baby would be a girl. Okay, take a, a brief pause from the story to explore this for just a little bit. Is there no way they can transition, like say, hey, we thought you were going to be a girl, you're a boy, and we have a backup name, or even if we don't have a backup name, we a name for you. There was not a... Were they bound by some contractual obligation? Something that would make them stick to their guns on the name? Um. I know I might be asking the yes? wrong person. Yes. Well, that's just like. I don't know. Like my, my wife, for example, and her mother, when she was pregnant, the doctor didn't know. It's like, oh, uh, yeah, you're pregnant. You're going to have a baby. And then she gave birth. Two babies came out. And they're like, oh, crap. We need another name and it was like just kind of looking around and seeing what works so they called her shelf uh yeah well i didn't want to share with the listeners shelf okay. tissue box then maiden name ah okay love shelf so does shelf tissue box and your wife ever trade places secretly just to see if you notice they did on the phone when i first met because they sounded so similar when i would call it was very like, am I talking to my girlfriend or am I talking to my girlfriend's sister? Say, hey, I love you. And it's not tissue box or it is tissue box and it's not. Yeah. So Doris, sorry for the tangent. He was the third of four sons and helped around the house, cooked meals and did laundry, as well as worked on the family farm. He was a fullback on the football team at Waco's Alexander James Moore High School. He began attending the eighth grade at age 17, and he repeated the grade the following year because he did not do very well at school. Hmm. And so he was like, I'm not doing this again. I'm done. He filled his time squirrel hunting with a 22 and completed a correspondence course in taxidermy. He then applied to join the Civilian Conversation Corps, but was not accepted. At the time, he was six feet three inches, and weighed more than 200 pounds. Yeah, when you said fullback, I was like, this is a big dude. Fullback who worked on a farm. Right. He's... So not only is he big, but he's built. Right. It's what you call country strong. He worked on the farm, actually, until just before his 20th birthday. 
So Miller is listed in the U.S. Navy as a mess attendant third class at the Naval Recruiting Station in Dallas. He was transferred to the Naval Training Center, Naval Operating Base, Norfolk, Virginia. After training school, he was assigned to the ammunition ship Pyro, AE-1, and then transferred in 1940 to the Colorado-class battleship West Virginia, BB-48. It was on the West Virginia where he started competition boxing, becoming the ship's heavyweight champion. In July, he was on temporary duty aboard the Nevada BB-36 at Secondary Battery Gunnery School. He returned to West Virginia on August 3rd, and he advanced in rating to mess attendant second class on February 16th, 1941. Can I ask you a question real quick, because something fit in my how you're describing it. And I know you mentioned at this time they could only, like in the men, as far as specialty attendant, mm -hmm. that makes sense as far as rating. When he's getting trained on gun batteries, though, how does that duties of what a method? Why is he getting this? Or is that just a common training? When you are on board, you have a battle station. More than likely, he was getting training to be a secondary gun battery as his battle station. I see. So he would need training on the specific weapon that he would be expected to man when general quarters is sounded. Yeah, because when you go to battle stations, everybody, everybody is activated. Oh, yeah. No, it, the entire crew is up in full battle dress at their battle stations, no matter where it is. Okay. Like my, like when I was in, my battle station was a AFFF pump in, uh, oh, where was it? It was on the main deck, starboard side, about, about halfway forward and, and starboard, about the midline. Uh, there was a pumping station that was for fire suppression, AFFF. Okay. And my responsibilities there is to make sure that that pump is running right, if needed. The closest I ever got to that was a fire drill. So I don't, not not quite as precise. It's just like everybody go to that pole with gusto, uh, but order. I imagine battle stations. Well, everything's still very ordered. I imagine so. Yeah, when you have narrow collide into. Well, when you have 5,000 men and women all going to the battle stations, you would think it would be crazy and hectic, but it's not. It's very, very ordered. That's not how I imagined That's it. the training. That's cool. Oh, and speaking of firefighting, every member of the Navy is a trained firefighter. And I think that is that is a competitive advantage world powers, because if there is a fire on deck, everybody knows if you have only, maybe they got caught up in an explosion and they're gone. Nobody knows how to, and that's a problem. Everybody knows. Uh, let's see. So that brings us to Pearl Harbor. December 7th, 1941. Miller woke up at 0600 aboard the West Virginia. He served breakfast mess and was collecting laundry at 0757 when the Japanese aircraft fired the first of seven torpedoes that hit the West Virginia. The general quarters alarm went off, and Miller headed to his battle station, which was the anti-aircraft battery magazine midships. 
When he got there, he discovered that a torpedo had destroyed it. He then went to quote-unquote Times Square on deck. This was a central spot aboard the ship where the fore-to-aft and port-to-starboard P-ways crossed, and he reported himself available for other duty. And he was assigned to help carry wounded sailors to places of greater safety. I say greater safety because when you're under attack, there really is no safe place. Exactly, yes. Especially when you're on the target. Yeah. A guy named Lieutenant Commander Dor C. Johnson, who was the ship's communications officer, spotted Miller and saw how big he was and ordered him to accompany him to the conning tower on the flag bridge to assist in moving the ship's captain, Mervyn Bennon, who had a gaping wound in his abdomen where he had been hit by shrapnel after the first Japanese attack. Miller and another sailor lifted the captain, but were unable to remove him from the bridge. So he carried him on a cot from his exposed position to a sheltered spot on the deck behind the conning tower, where he remained there during the second Japanese wave. The captain actually refused to leave his post, period, and questioned his officers and men about about the condition of the ship. And he kept giving orders to defend his ship. He, uh, so he was, because of smoke and flames, he was carried up to a ladder to the navigation bridge, and that is where he passed away from blood loss. And he was given the Medal of Honor. That's incredible. Like, you have this humongous gaping wound in your abdomen, and instead of panicking, fleeing, you're like, nope, there's still orders to be given. We're under attack now, and that's what I'm doing. Literally took his last breath. Lieutenant Frederick H. White had ordered Miller to help him and Ensign Victor Delano load the unmanned number one and number two Browning 50 caliber anti-aircraft machine gun, which was located aft of the conning tower. Now, Miller, he was not familiar with this weapon, but White and Delano gave him instruction on how to operate it. Now, Delano expected Miller to feed the ammunition to one of the guns. But his attention got diverted, and when he looked up again, Miller was actually firing the gun. So, White then loaded ammunition into both guns and assigned Miller to the starboard gun. So, Miller, he fired and fired and fired until he ran out of ammunition, where he was then ordered by Lieutenant Claude V. Ricketts to help carry the captain up to the navigation bridge, which we, you know, just went through not too long ago. Miller is officially credited with downing at least two Japanese planes. He said, quote, I think I got one of them Jap planes. They were diving pretty close to us. (laughs) The Japanese aircraft eventually dropped two armor-piercing bombs through the deck of the battleship and launched five more 18-inch torpedoes into her port side. When the attack finally got to a point where they could actually put their heads up, Miller helped move injured sailors through oil and water to the quarterdeck, where he unquestionably saved lives of a number of people who would have been lost. So the ship is now heavily damaged by both bombs and torpedoes, and the so she had a massive damage, massive fires but they were able to prevent her from capsizing by counter-flooding compartments. 
Uh, what do you mean by that? So, like, she was leaning one way, and they flooded the other side, so it's level? Upright. Okay, cool. So, so she didn't capsize. So, when she sank, she sank to the bottom in shallow water and staying upright, which would make her more easily recoverable later. And I imagine easier to escape. Yes. Uh, let's see. On the West Virginia, 132 men were killed and 52 were wounded from the attack. On December 13th, Miller reported to the heavy cruiser Indianapolis CA-35. On January 1st, 1942, the Navy released a list of commendations for actions on December 7th, and among them was a single com- commendation for a unnamed black man. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People asked President Franklin D. Roosevelt to award the Distinguished Service Cross to this unknown sailor. The Navy Board of Awards received a recommendation that the sailor be considered for recognition, and on March 12th, an Associated Press story named Miller as the sailor. The, along with the Pittsburgh carrier and correspondence with the Navy Department, they finally, you know, identified him and gave legitimacy, I guess you could say, to his claim for the award. And so in the following day, Senator James M. Meade introduced a Senate bill to award Miller the Medal of Honor. And a representative named John Dingle Sr. introduced a matching House bill. Imagine a lot of those right after uh, the bombing of Pearl I mean, not, not to take anything away what activity uh, these are acts of congo i'm yeah. sure there were acts of br- and yeah for doors yeah miller is actually recognized as one of the first u.s heroes of world war ii he was commended in a letter signed by secretary of the navy frank knox on april 1st and the next day cbs radio broadcast an episode of the series they live forever which dramatized his actions Black organizations began a campaign to honor Miller with additional recognition. And on April 4th, the Pittsburgh Carrier urged readers to write to members of the Congressional Naval Affairs Committee to support awarding the Medal of Honor to Miller. The the All-Southern Negro Youth Conference launched a signature campaign, and the National Negro Congress denounced Knox's recommendation against awarding Miller the Medal of Honor. On May 11th, President Roosevelt approved the Navy Cross for Miller. And that's the second highest Medal of Honor? Yes. Yes. On May 27th, Miller was personally recognized by Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, who was Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet aboard the aircraft carrier Enterprise CV-6 at anchor in Pearl Harbor. Nimitz presented Miller with the Navy Cross, at this time the third highest Navy award for gallantry during combat, after the Medal of Honor and the Navy Distinguished Service Medal. Yeah, I've heard of Nimitz. He he shows up quite a bit in the history books. On August 7, 1942, Congress revised the Order of Presidents, and this now placed the Navy Cross against the Distinguished Service Medal. Nimitz has a quote here, Quote, this marks the first time in this conflict that such a high tribute has been made in the Pacific Fleet to a member of his race, and I'm sure that the future will see similarly honored for brave acts. 
Miller then advanced to mess attendant first class on June 1st, 1942. And on June 27th, the Pittsburgh Courier called for him to be allowed to return home for a war bond tour along with other white war heroes. On July 25th, the Pittsburgh Courier ran a photo of Miller with the caption, He fought, keeps mop. Next to a photo of a white survivor of the Pearl Harbor attack receiving an officer's commission. The photo captions say that the Navy felt that Miller was too important waiting tables in the Pacific for him to return to the United States. Yeah, that's that's that sticks in my craw, as they say, that, hey, here's a super high award for your gallantry. Yeah, um, please go back to being a mess attendant. Maybe, yeah. maybe we get this wonderful individual in a different way. On November 23rd, Miller returned to Pearl Harbor and was ordered on a war bond tour while still attached to Indianapolis. In December and January of 1943, he gave presentations in Oakland, California, in his hometown of Waco, and in Dallas to the first graduating class of black sailors from Great Lakes Naval Training Station. He was, he was also featured on the 1943 Navy recruiting poster above and beyond the Call of Duty. In February of 1943, mess attendant was changed to steward's mate. So he's now a steward's mate instead of a mess attendant. On May 15th, Miller reported to Puget Sound Navy Yard at Birmingham, Washington, and assigned to the newly constructed escort carrier Liscombe Bay, CVE 56. He was advanced in rating to Cook, third class, on June 1st. The ship had a crew of 960 men, and its primary functions were to serve as a convoy escort and to provide aircraft for close air support during amphibious landing operations. They were also to ferry aircraft to naval bases and fleet carriers at sea. The Liscombe Bay was the flagship for Carrier Division 24, which was under the command of Rear Admiral Harry M. Mullenix. And on October 22nd, they set sail for Pearl Harbor. After training in Hawaii waters... Liscombe Bay left Pearl Harbor on November 10, 1943, to join the Northern Task Force, Task Group 52. They took part in the Battle of Macon, which had begun on November 20th. On November 24th, the day after Macon was captured by American soldiers and the eve of Thanksgiving, Liscombe Bay was cruising near the Markin Atoll main island. I'm going to butcher this name, but. Buturini. I have not heard it pronounced uh, any other way, in all honesty. Have you so it works. Okay. Have you ever heard it pronounced before? Okay, the well, there you go. Uh-huh, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> but she was struck just before dawn in the stern by a torpedo from a Japanese submarine, the I-175. When she was struck, the her own torpedoes and aircraft bombs were hit and caused secondary explosions, causing the ship to sink in 23 minutes. Wow, that is fast. There were 272 survivors of a crew of over 900. That's devastating. And unfortunately, Miller was among the two-thirds of the crew listed as presumed dead. His parents were informed that he was missing in action on December 7th, 1943, 
Liscombe Bay was the only ship lost in the Gilbert Islands operation. A memorial service was held for Miller on April 30, 1944 at the Second Baptist Church in Waco, Texas, sponsored by the Victory Club. On May 28th, a granite marker was dedicated at Moore High School in Waco to honor him. High Miller school? was officially... De- yeah, sorry. high school. Yeah, I guess, sorry. I was thinking headstone, but that's not what you necessarily meant. Granite marker. I was like, a headstone at a high school? That's weird. I'm on board now. Okay. Miller was officially declared dead uh, by the Navy on November 25th, 1944, a year and a day after the loss of Liscombe Bay. So his awards, he received the Navy Cross. He received a Purple Heart, posthumous. He received a Combat Action Ribbon, posthumous. He received a Good Conduct Medal. He received the American Defense Service Medal with Fleet Clasp. He received the American Campaign Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with two Bronze Stars, and the World War II Victory Medal. Posthumous. His Navy Cross citation reads as follows For distinguished devotion to duty, extraordinary courage, and disregard for his own personal safety during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor, territory of Hawaii, by Japanese forces on December 7th, 1941, while at the sight of his captain on the bridge, Miller, despite enemy strafing and bombing in the face of serious fire, assisted in moving his captain, who had been mortally wounded, to a place of greater safety and later manned and operated a machine gun directed at enemy Japanese attacking aircraft until ordered to leave the bridge. So that was Doris Miller. All right, next we're going to talk about Michelle Howard. Michelle Janine Howard is a retired United States Navy four-star admiral who last served as the commander of the United States Naval Forces Europe, United States Naval Forces Africa, and Allied Joint Force Command Naples. She was previously the 38th Vice Chief of Admiral Operations and assumed her last assignment June 7th, 2016. Okay. What a dramatic difference. I was just sitting here thinking about uh, Doris Miller, thinking if if they would have allowed him into a different specialty or... uh, how he could have used his skills and acumen for something else, and would he have been commissioned? Would he have? What what could he have done? And the next person we're talking about, a hundred years later, practically, has accomplished so much. Continue. This is again a step in the right direction. Um, she achieved many historical firsts throughout her naval career. She was the first African American woman to command a United States Navy ship the USS Rushmore, and the first to achieve two and then three-star rank. In 2006, she was selected for the rank of Rear Admiral, lower half, making her the first admiral selected from the United States Naval Academy, class of 1982, and the first female graduate of the United States Naval Academy selected for flag rank. On July 1st, 1914, she was appointed to Vice Chief of Naval Operations, the second highest ranking officer in the Navy. Wow. Upon her swearing in, she became the highest ranking woman and first female four-star admiral in United States Naval history. She also became the first female four-star admiral to command operational forces. 
when she assumed command of United States Naval Forces Europe and Naval Forces Africa. This lady must be tough as nails, because I imagine being an admiral is no small task. And no, having to, not at all. Having to put up, no, no offense, Dale, put, having to put up with sailors and then telling them what to do and then commanding fleets. I mean, for anybody, male or female, regardless of ethnicity, that's a tough job. And that's uh, that's awesome. Yeah. She retired December 1st, 2017, after nearly 36 years of service in the United States Navy. In 2021, she was appointed to the Naming Commission, which is a congressional commission created to rename U.S. military assets and locations with names associated with the Confederacy. Cool. Okay. So, like, Robert E. Lee something-something would be something else? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so, that's that's Admiral Michelle Howard. Man, what a, what a dynamo. That's, I mean... Again, someone I had not heard of. You don't really, I don't read about at least. And so this is a really good opportunity to reflect on, hey, here's some really strong contributors that may have been overlooked. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. that, Dale. All right. We got one more before we call the episode for today. This is going to be Master Chief April D. Beldo. All right. So she was born in Kern County, California on January 18th, 1964, and she graduated from Desert High School, located on Edwards Air Force Base in 1982. She graduated from Excelsior University with a Bachelor of Science degree and received her Master of Arts degree from American Military University in Management in August of 2015. Yes, I know. No, it's not doesn't have anything to do with Stanley. <laughs> well, I heard Bachelor of Science and Master of Arts. I was like, what the master's degree was in? But you said it. So you saw the confused look on my face, and you answered the question. That's why we're a great team. I provide the confused looks. You provide the answers. So uh, Beldo received recruit training at Recruit Training Command Center in Orlando, Florida in 1983. That facility no longer exists. Oh. She completed aviation administration, a school in Meridian, Mississippi, and she served on board the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, CVN-72, and the USS Kitty Hawk, CVN-63. She served with the aviation maintenance management teams at Commander Naval Air Force Atlantic, and also aboard the aircraft carrier USS George Washington, CVN-73. She served on the same boat I did. That's awesome. In 2002, she was chosen for Command Master Chief program and graduated with honors. Her first assignment as Command Master Chief was with the destroyer USS Bulkley DDG-84, and she was there from May 2003 to December 2005. From April 2006 to June 2008, she served as the Command Master Chief for Recruit Training Command, the first African-American female to fill this role. That would be in Great Lakes, Illinois, which is the only recruit training center we have anymore, even during this time. Wow. In October 2009, she became the command master chief for the aircraft carrier USS Carl Vinson, CVN-70, 
the first female Command Master Chief for an aircraft carrier. From April 2012 to February 2013, Beldo was the first forced Master Chief for Naval Education and Training Command. Starting in March 2013, she became the first Fleet Master Chief for Manpower Personnel Training and Education. She served in this position until her retirement from the Navy in January of 2017. Um, during her career, she received a lot of ribbons and awards and decorations. The ones that stand out are the Meritorious Service Medal, the Navy and Marine Corps Accommodation Medal, the Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal, and the Legion of Merit. That's incredible. I have a question. When you say master- I have an answer. Oh, great. I'm sure you do. I'm positive you do. When you say Master Chief, what, where does that lie as far as rank? goes is is that a commissioned uh rank or non-commissioned or where would that be master chief is the highest enlisted rate that you could have okay or rank you could have well technically with enlisted is pay grade while the officers have rank but it's it's a rank yeah i i agree with you so yeah uh she was at the very top of enlisted all right, so that is going to do it for us for this week. So, XO, Christoph, XOXO, take us out, XOXO. Stop with the hugs and kisses, man. That's You're making me uncomfortable. But I, I mean, thank you for the sentiment, but yeah. Okay, I'll take us out. How about that? So thank you for yeah. listening, listeners. Um, it's always a great time to, to learn something new. Uh, if you want to reach out to us um, or ask us a question, U.S. Navy History Podcast. Uh, you can also catch us on Twitter at and Accord. We've got one of those, too. We're super cool. You can find the uh, Additionally, there are uh, countless ways. Explore them all. Uh, we're on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes. You name it, we're there. And while you're there, the higher the better. Um And with that, we're going to wish you guys fair winds and following seas. Bye. Bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. 